Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon, who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thanks for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Today I'm speaking to Norris T, the CEO of Exosonic, a California-based startup that is developing a low-sonic boom supersonic passenger aircraft. Norris holds an engineering degree from UCLA, an MBA from Stanford, and before starting Exosonic, worked on supersonic aircraft at Northrop Grumman, Virgin Galactic, and Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. What differentiates Exosonic from other upstarts in the reviving supersonic aircraft space is that the company is specifically focusing on reducing the intensity of sonic booms. Current regulation forbids supersonic flights across America to minimize noise pollution, a restriction which significantly limited the routes that the first supersonic airliner, the Concorde, could fly. To soften sonic booms, Exosonic is using a concept and technology originally pioneered by NASA known as shaped sonic booms. As a first step, Exosonic has partnered with the U.S. Air Force to develop a supersonic executive transport aircraft that will provide U.S. leaders and diplomats rapid transportation around the world. So in this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Norris and I talk about his lifelong inspiration for speeding up air travel, the theory behind sonic booms, what is different about designing supersonic aircraft, the economics of supersonic flights, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, but now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Norris T. Norris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dr. Grove, for including me. So before we start talking about Exosonic, um, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? So how did you become interested in engineering and uh, what is your background as an engineer? Yeah, sure. A little bit of a long-winded story. However, um, it really started in childhood for me. I mean, growing up, you know, I loved watching space shuttle launches and being just exposed to aerospace in general, like through pamphlets that my, my parents brought back for me when I was little and just getting to explore uh, rocketry through some middle school classes. Um, but what really drove me to start the company was just this question that I had about uh, faster travel. Like I traveled a lot across the Pacific Ocean, having relatives there. And being in the Bay Area flying to Asia, it's of course a very long flight. Uh, and on those long flights, you, you definitely have a lot of time to think. And it just, you know, over time, it's like, as I'm sitting in these airplanes, like why, I'm wondering why aren't my flights getting any faster? And growing up in Silicon Valley, you know, there's always technologies that are advancing, getting faster, smaller, of course, more affordable. And that just wasn't really happening in the commercial aviation space as much. Um, of course, there was the exception of the Concorde, but unfortunately, 
you know, that didn't really continue into the 21st century. And at that time, like the early 2000s, no one was really working on anything to quicken transportation times. And you know, I thought to myself, like, well, I mean, <clears throat> why can't there be a faster future? And you know, I don't really don't imagine that subsonic flight would continue forever. And so uh, when I was around high school, I asked, I asked myself, like, why don't I do something about this? And then that question really sparked uh, a lot of inspiration, motivation in myself to then explore that problem. And then that led me to study aerospace engineering at UCLA, specifically, specifically propulsion, because I wanted to figure out a way to move people around the world faster. And while in industry, you know, I, I switched jobs quite a few times working at Northrop Grumman, uh, Virgin Galactic, and Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, all on vehicles that break the sound barrier, and as a propulsion engineer. And from those experiences, I really determined for myself that I thought low boom supersonic travel would be the answer to my childhood question. Great. I mean, that's, yeah, that sounds fascinating. Sounds a, a very inspirational uh, background story to why and how you, you started Exosonic. So could you just, um, you know, delve a little bit deeper in, in what, your, what your previous roles were? So you mentioned an, a number of companies there. And what was your specialist area of expertise um, at these companies that then led you to, to start Exosonic? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of both technical, but also uh, a little bit also, I would say, uh, anthropological, <laughs> just mm. like understanding how aerospace companies work and the people that work in those companies are like. Uh, so that, that was also very important in addition to my technical background. Um, in all three of those companies, I was a propulsion engineer, uh, either as an air breathing propulsion engineer or working on jet engines. Uh, or working on uh, rockets, right? In the, in the case of Virgin Galactic, uh, I was working on Spaceship Two uh, on the, uh, you know, on Spaceship Two's engine. In uh, Lockheed, I was working on again more engine cycle analysis for turbo and engines. Uh, so at Northrop, I was doing hypersonics, though, so I was scramjets, and from that experience, I learned that there was still a lot of work to be done to really get that technology mature. I mean, I think still to this day, at least unclassified, uh, the X-51 Wraiter is the longest running continuous, continuous running uh, scramjet, which is on the order of magnitude of minutes, right? But if we want to do commercial flight, we need to get that onto the order of magnitude of like hours. Uh, so there's certainly a lot of technology to be done there. Uh, and at least with the Spaceship 2 platform, I didn't think that was a way to get uh, faster travel. And it seems like Virgin Galactic thinks that too, as they recently released their um, Mach 3 supersonic business jet concept. And then finally, Skunkworks, I was working on a X-59 and a low-boom supersonic flight demonstrator, where that aircraft specifically was um, the culmination of decades of NASA research on proving low-boom uh, supersonic flight capabilities. And the whole purpose of that vehicle is to eventually lift the supersonic overland flight ban in the United States and hopefully abroad too. All right. Yeah, that's that sounds fascinating. So, I mean, it definitely sounds you have a very broad and also <clears throat> deep background in um, in supersonic flight. And um, so, you, you've just mentioned this problem or one of the uh, one of the challenges that you have 
is is kind of developing a low boom supersonic aircraft so let's let's just start a little bit simple so you know so, some of the basics essentially why is you know supersonic air travel so challenging from a technical uh, perspective and what is what is why are sonic booms such a problem yeah so i think just building supersonic airplanes is a pretty complex uh, art uh, however there's been a lot of work done to mature the field over the past 60 years but of course even with that uh, knowledge base over time it's still a challenge just due to how many different elements need to be simultaneously uh, working in conjunction with each other. Uh, but generally, uh, for supersonic travel, uh, specifically in the commercial space, I mean, the loud sonic boom is a huge issue preventing supersonic transport uh, from you know, realizing its fullest capabilities. And you know, we've talked to you know, airlines, past Concord people about that, and, and other folks too. And, and I think there's great sentiment if you can fly over land supersonically, that's a no-brainer. Uh, the United States has done some studies. Uh, you can look at Oklahoma City or, you know, quote unquote boomtown, where uh, I, I believe they allowed the military to overfly the town to do sonic booms to simulate what, you know, overland supersonic flight would be like uh, for a city if they were to include sonic booms. And the study showed that people just got kind of stir crazy with the boom shaking their houses like eight times a day. Uh, for months on end. So uh, there obviously needs to be work done to minimize that boom, which is what NASA has been doing uh, you know, for over 30 years at least. Yeah, so you know, one of the kind of key capabilities that I've kind of uh, encountered when I, when I did my research on exosonic is that you have this focus on shaped sonic booms. And uh, as you mentioned, NASA has done some some background work on this. So first of all, can can you explain um, what you're doing? So what is a shaped sonic boom? And then of course, you know, what did what what is NASA's role in this? What what is the background technological development that you're kind of picking up on? Yeah, yeah. So I would say some of the earliest flight test programs to prove that the theory can actually be done in practice uh, stems back to the early 2000s. It was a DARPA program called um, what was it? Oh, a QSP, called Quiet Supersonic Platform, which then turned into, uh, very shortly after, the uh, Shaped Sonic Boom Demonstrator that was done in conjunction with NASA and Northrop Grumman. And what they did on that program in the early like 2003-04 timeframe was that they took an F-5 and uh, modified the nose of the aircraft where they you know, used their uh, the theory that they developed to shape the nose and predict what the shaped sonic boom uh, loudness will look like. And then they actually go, went to fly that aircraft, put some microphones down uh, at Edwards Air Force Base, I believe, and then had some other aircraft flying nearby to catch some atmospheric noise data as well. And then we're able to show that that modified nose, which is essentially uh, stretched out a little bit, it, it can actually uh, soften the sonic boom from, uh, you know, kind of like the loud thunderish shock that you usually hear to something a little bit softer. And they characterize that loud sonic boom as this N wave, where it's like this huge pressure rise or this boom that, of course, 
days, and then you get a second shock from the tail end of the aircraft, and that creates the end. And what they want to do is turn to an S where they soften that um, peak, if you will, from the end wave, turn it into more of an S-shaped pattern. So it's more gradual and uh, softer. All right, so let, let me just kind of recap, recap a little bit of that just to make sure that, 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 that I've got all of that. So, so basically, as you, as you break the sound barrier, aircraft basically due to compressibility effects in the air, create the sonic boom. And what you're doing with these shaped sonic booms is that by changing the shape of the aircraft and the aerodynamic surfaces, you're kind of adapting their morphology of the sonic boom to reduce the kind of the severity of the the sound pressure level so just reducing the maximum kind of loudness that that they would hear if you um were a listener on the ground and kind of being subjected to the sonic boom is that kind of in in a nutshell is base is that basically the theory of of, of shaped sonic booms yeah i, I think that's uh it's pretty well represented or well represented and and so how how does so th this theory of shaped sonic booms how does this then um, kind of uh, work into the design of the aircraft? So what is so you know simply put what is the optimal shape of the aircraft that you want to achieve to kind of minimize um, the sonic boom? Is it just making it more streamlined? Do you want more kind of delta wings or swept back wings kind of what is the key design driver that is um you know yeah that is driving your design to minimize the effect of the of the sonic boom yeah there, there's uh, definitely multiple uh, elements across the aircraft design so it's a lot about placing uh where the shock waves come off the vehicle right so you can imagine you know of course the front end of the aircraft where the engines are and what the inlet system looks like that um, the tail end of the aircraft, they all kind of create shockwaves that come off. And as a, you know, another way to think about the, the shape sonic boom stuff is like how you place the shockwaves that come off the vehicle because you know, it's ultimately these shockwaves that um, as they propagate towards the ground that they start to coalesce. So the objective is really to place the shockwaves in such a manner that as they propagate downwards, they don't coalesce into one giant boom, but in instead into a series of smaller, weaker booms. Uh, and what that usually manifests itself into in the aircraft design is a pretty stretched out nose <clears throat> to help distribute those shockwaves from the front. Uh, and then there's a lot to be done on the engine side and, and how you mount the engines onto the aircraft. And so ideally, you know, you probably want the engines to be on top to uh, reflect the shockwaves that come off from the uh, inlet system and then bounce off, say, the delta wing that you have and then reflect into the upper atmosphere, upper atmosphere versus going downwards towards the ground. Um, but of course, in a commercial vehicle, there are other implications of that, mostly maintenance, like no one likes to maintain an aircraft that's sitting on top of a wing and would prefer uh, lower. So it's things like this that we need to incorporate into the aircraft design whilst also balancing that with other more practical considerations like maintenance. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I mean, there's always, of course, um, you know, compromises that have to be made in terms of, of course, you know, the aerodynamic factors, the structural factors, propulsion, all of these things, of course, have to flow together into a successful design. But if, if you say that NASA had some success 
um, in using this shaped sonic boom theory. You know, what what is stopping us from just taking this successful design and then just literally just scaling it up to a commercial size? Is there basically kind of, you know, a, a threshold where you run into where whatever NASA did um, won't work at, at a larger scale? Or is it is this, you know, the design that they created kind of scale invariant where you can just scale it up as, as, as much as you want? Yeah. I mean, there are a number of factors that prevent scaling it, right? Of course, weight is a huge issue in terms of the sonic boom loudness as well, in addition to shape. Um, and then there are other things like cost, manufacturing, the engineering, just go, closing all the other disciplines, right? Can you provide a propulsion system that provides enough thrust for you to break the sound barrier and cruise at a reasonable speed? Um, so it's not simply as scaling an aircraft to include this you know, the sonic boom shaping theories and, and building like a very large supersonic aircraft. The other constraints that prevent that from happening. Um, but in terms of where NASA is now, right? Uh, it was great that in the early 2000s, they proved that you can ship a sonic boom. And then so between then and now, NASA done a lot of work to determine the acceptable loudness of that boom, right? Like you'll never completely get rid of a sonic boom but if you can reduce the noise at, to such a level that it's no longer a hindrance to people on the ground, then that can make supersonic flight acceptable. So uh, NASA and Japan has also done a lot of work to assess how loud a sonic boom can be for people to accept that. And then that's what the NASA X-59 vehicle is built around. Like what NASA researchers and um, some participants have said is a reasonable amount. Um, and they say that's around like 75 PLDB or perceived loudness decibels. Uh, and that's what the X-59 is being built to. However, what happens after the X-59 flies is that they will fly across you know, some cities, boom them, and then have the citizens report back to NASA and ultimately the FAA on if they think this is acceptable. And if it is acceptable, right, based off some of the NASA research, it seems like it will be, um, then the NASA and the FAA can work together to write a law into effect that changes the current supersonic overland flight ban put in place, you know, because of the Concorde in the 1970s and change it from a speed limit of Mach 1 to a noise limit. Yeah, and so that's, you know, basically the, the thing that's stopping uh, low boom supersonic flight from occurring. Right. So you've you've pre previously talked about some of the other you know co compromises um, that you wanted to or that you need to kind of achieve to have a um, a feasible design. So if I'm if I'm thinking about kind of the the classic subsonic aircraft, and then I'm thinking about a supersonic aircraft. Of course, there are many things that are probably invariant. So, of course, you want to maximize your lift-to-drag ratio. You want to, you know, use lightweight materials. You want to have efficient power plants. So, I, I presume that most of those things probably stay relatively constant. You know, they're they're they're, they're the same. But so, w what is something special about the supersonic regime that makes it different from kind of developing a conventional subsonic aircraft? Yeah, so uh, there are at least two or, or maybe three, depending on the speed elements that I can think of off the top of my head, right? One is 
is aerodynamics and you talk about drag, right? Once you have supersonic flight, you talk about wave drag, which is due to, you know, kind of the supersonic flight phenomena. Um, and that becomes pretty considerable. And of course, some of the earliest experiments in supersonic flight, right? You had the, the huge uh, drag rise that you have to overcome uh, when you start approaching Mach 1. And to break through that uh, drag rise and, you know, kind of the, the sound barrier, if you will, is like, how do you get enough thrust or how do you reduce your drag such that, that you, know, you don't need as much thrust to, to get over that. So that's those two elements, the wave drag and that drag pressure, but the drag rise as you approach Mach 1 are two aerodynamic challenges that need to be overcome. Uh, secondly, propulsion side of things, right? So when you look at your typical subsonic airplane, you basically see the engine face, right? The, you have the, well, you have the giant fan in front, mm -hmm. but then when you look at a supersonic airplane, like where is the fan? You don't see the fan anymore. And, you know, it's like, why is that? And the issue is that you have basically supersonic flow hitting, you know, if you just remove the whole inlet system, um, then you have supersonic flow hitting a fan, <clears throat> which, which obviously is very bad uh, for the fan and the materials in the fan and all that stuff. So the whole purpose of the inlet system is to slow down the speed of the air from supersonic to subsonic speeds while maintaining as much <clears throat> uh, total pressure or basically usable work of the airflow such that the engine can then combust the, the air. And that's what the whole inlet duct system is designed to do uh, at the most basic. And that's what we need to incorporate you know, with our supersonic airplane, similar to what the Concorde had with their um, um, inlet system. And so that's another uh, big issue. Yeah, I, I can definitely, if I, if I picture Concorde with the Rolls-Royce Olympus engine, yeah, one of the distinctive features was definitely that very long intake, um, which, yeah, so basically, I, th I think if I, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, that basically actually, um, you know, guided the, as, as the um, flow slowed down from supersonic to subsonic, it had these guided um, booms to kind of slow the flow down in, in, exactly. in the intake. Yeah. Right. So, so even right. that so, sounds like mm -hmm. a super complicated <laughs> engineering and aerodynamic problem. Right. And, you know, if we can talk a little bit more technical, right, you, you basically try to get a, a series of oblique shocks or, or maybe one, depending on the inlet system. And then you end in a terminal normal shock, right? And so this is what a lot of the work that I did at, at Skunk Works and also Northrop Grumman was, was understanding uh, right inlet geometry for supersonic flight. And the thing is, it's like between Mach 1 and whatever your cruise speed is, your, your oblique shock structure will change because you're flying at different speeds. And so, it's, you know, in Concourse case, it had a variable inlet system where they can change the ramp angles to then uh, account for the different, uh, you know, basically acceleration to um, the cruising speed and adjust the shock structure to get the optimal um, pressure recovery or basically maintaining uh, the amount of as much usable work in the airflow as possible to get efficient combustion. Uh, so that's obviously something that we need to do as well. But if you do, this is too much detail at this point, but it's, I'll just finish really quickly. Um, there's complexity with making it perfect. So 
uh, and also adds weight to have that variable inlet system. So if you can do like a fixed inlet system, then you save on complexity and weight with some sacrifice on performance. And that's just another, you know, iteration and design consideration that we need to make. Right. So overall, yeah, you have to make the assessment which solution comes out, uh, you know, out, out front in terms of uh, overall performance. But it, it, yeah, it definitely sounds like a super complicated optimization problem that is definitely very, very far from trivial, even in the modern day. So uh, shifting gears just a little bit kind of to the to the business case. So, um, you know, what what is the business case for developing a supersonic aircraft? So you mentioned before that, of course, we always want to, you know, it's great to be able to travel faster. But, um, you know, Concorde, you know, was famously terminated because they were, you know, it, it just wasn't financially viable um, before kind of uh, September 11th, 2001, but especially afterwards when the aviation world hit kind of a shock. So has anything changed in terms of the overall economics or, or we kind of what, what is the business case for developing a supersonic aircraft? Yeah, I mean, some of our, uh, some of our competitors out there talk a lot about uh, just the overall technological improvement since the Concord days, right? I mean, it was designed in the 1960s and now we're like in 2020. Uh, and so computational models have really gotten better. Simulations have gotten really advanced. Materials have improved a lot. Engine technology has improved a lot, right? Where you can run hotter materials. Uh, you can have more efficient engines, things like that. Um, and all of these, like kind of like your research with carbon composites, right? You don't have to use the metal structures anymore. You can use lighter composites that are also stronger and don't have as much thermal expansion issues as, as um, say, the aluminum or other metal components and there's a lot of benefits that technology has provided that can make uh, supersonic travel uh, more affordable in some ways because of lighter structures or more efficient engines um, however one thing about the concord despite perhaps its fuel burn being really high was just its maintenance cost right we've talked to a number of airlines and you know, what what is one consideration for them is like how do we maintain this aircraft? Like, is it going to be really expensive? I'm not going to replace the engines like, you know, after only five thousand cycles or something like that. Um, and and one huge component of maintenance cost is like how many aircraft you have, right? The Concorde the Concord had like fourteen aircraft in service, and if you're going to make spare parts for fourteen of anything it's just gonna be really expensive, right? Like look at your Rolls Royce or like your, your Ferraris, which are all like basically handmade in some ways, but they have very few units. And so their spare parts are really expensive versus like, you know, the Honda Civic. Like there are millions of them out there. You can get spare parts easily because they have scale on their side. <clears throat> so when we think about superstar transport for the 21st century, we need to incorporate scale and what we translate that to mean is, well, if you can fly over land, then you can, of course, fly a lot more aircraft um, to many different routes and then ultimately sell more airplanes and produce more airplanes. And then that by producing as many airplanes as possible, then you can make the maintenance costs lower. And that also helps with making the Concorde uh, more affordable to operate. 
Right. So overall, you're basically saying that you you basically need to drive up the uh, the number of air aircraft that you're flying to get economies of scale. And to do that, you need to be able to fly cross continent. And to be able to do that, you need to get the sonic boom down. So that's kind of that is kind of the the reasoning essentially. If I'm if I'm to recap uh, what what I think is kind of your reasoning that's led to Exosonic. Yes. And and I guess so in Silicon Valley, you've got a number, or maybe I I, I definitely know of one. So Boom is I think another uh, startup from Silicon Valley, or or, or I think founded by. Um, uh, an accelerator in Silicon Valley. So, what is different about Exosonic? What kind of differentiates you from some of the, some of your competitors at the moment? Yeah. So, you know, I think Boom was founded in 2014, and they went through Y Combinator in around 2016. Uh, we also went through Y Combinator, but uh, most recently 2020. Our main difference is that Boom states they don't want any new technology. Right. They're utilizing the 60 plus years of technological improvements to design the, the overture vehicle. Uh, and you know, they're consciously not including low boom. Uh, and you can read some of Blake Scholl's interviews for that. In our case, we were found a little bit earlier. There were, uh, and since boom was founded, you know, there's, there became the X-9 program where it seems like there's a potential regulatory pathway through removing the supersonic overland flight ban and replacing it with that, again, that noise that we talked about. And our main difference then is taking advantage of that by developing a low boom supersonic airplane that can fly supersonic overland, unlike the booms aircraft. Right. Okay. So you've just mentioned that this year you were uh, in Y Combinator, which is um, a famous accelerator in Silicon Valley. So could you t just talk to what the state of the project is at Exosonic and um, what are some of the things on your roadmap to look out for, you know, in the coming years? Yeah. <clears throat> so we are in the conceptual design phase of our aircraft to the, the supersonic airliner. And, and that's been a lot of our focus. We, we do have a different um, mix of customers. I think at least from what's publicly available, Boom has focused uh, mostly on airlines, if not solely on airlines. Uh, we've taken a pretty active approach in uh, talking to both airlines and the US Air Force. Uh, and of course, it makes a little more sense right now because of COVID-19's impact to the airline industry. Uh, it just wouldn't be right for us to talk to airlines uh, since airlines have other bigger issues at hand than buying aircraft in the 2030 timeframe. <clears throat> so again, what we're offering for the Air Force is essentially uh, converting our aircraft, our commercial aircraft into military variants for you know, supersonic cargo or troop transport or perhaps executive airlift as well. Right. So, yeah, you, you basically also, I mean, I, I presume that, yeah, especially with COVID-19, that in the next couple of years, um, airlines probably, the, the interest to do a, a major <laughs> investment in novel aircraft is, is probably relatively low. So it's definitely good to have the second leg to be standing on in terms of uh, having contracts from from the military sector. And so you're, you're saying in, in that sense, in the military sector, some of the applications there are basically fast deployment of troops or far, fast deployment of cargo? Would that be kind of the main application? Right. 
Okay, very interesting. So just kind of um, as, a, as a closing question, so how can um, listeners stay up to date with uh, the developments at Exosonic? Are there any web pages or social media profiles that they should be following? Yeah, sure. So there is exosonic.com, our website. We also have Twitter. Uh, we're at uh, Fly Exosonic. And we're also on LinkedIn and Facebook, just, you know, Exosonic or Exosonic Incorporated. So those are ways in which we'll update uh, our, our content out there. Uh, we're, we're still learning social media. So we appreciate, Dr. Gro, your time with us on this podcast. And we can uh, you know, hopefully out, uh, reach out to more people because of the podcast. Uh, we are also looking to hire to support our, our contract with the Air Force. So that's another way to be more actively engaged and hear updates. Instead of externally, you can hear internally as well. Great. Well, I encourage all our listeners to yeah, definitely check out the social media profiles and do get in, in, in touch with Exosonic via those channels if they do have uh, any questions or are even just inspired by the project. So, Norris, thanks again very much for coming on the podcast today. And um, I you know, wish you all the best for your future. And I'll be um, following closely what is you know what you'll be de developing in the next uh, couple of years. Thanks a lot, Dr. Gro. If you would like to learn more about Exosonic, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, and there, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.